If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Um, grab it. Get to page 895. 33. I want to thank you all for being here, uh, especially if you're a guest, you're trying something new. We're so glad uh, that you're here today. We know how hard it is and how awkward and uncomfortable it is to walk into some new experience. And so we want to make sure that we go out of our way to greet you. Thank you for being here. And if, if this is your first time or your first couple of times and you have not stopped by our welcome desk just outside these doors, please do so today. We have a gift for you for coming and we're just so grateful uh, that you chose uh, to have this be a part of your morning. And um, to all of you who came last Sunday night uh, to our church appreciation night, and there was a lot of you, we uh, were so grateful that you were able to make that a part of your schedule uh, and a part of your experience, and I hope you had a great time. Uh, we all did, and just want to thank you for being a part of that. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started in Mark 8 this morning, so let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly thankful uh, for each and every person who's here. God, we're so incredibly thankful for the opportunity we've had to, to worship you, uh, to, 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 to magnify you, God, to, to lift your, your name up in, in praise and worship this morning. And we ask now, uh, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, that your voice would be loudest, uh, that you would uh, push me and the distractions of life out of the way, that your spirit would go to war against uh, the deceptions that our flesh and our world and the enemy uh, bring towards us, God, that you uh, would just do your work this morning the way only you can. And that you get the glory from it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So exactly eight years ago today, uh, there was a team from this church in uh, Berlin, uh, Germany, for a missions trip. And uh, I was with that team, and I'd actually been two times before, and so I was, I was asked to actually lead that team. And so what that means was, is that on the ground, it was my job to keep us on schedule, right? It was my job to get us on all the right buses and trains, to get us to our destinations on time, to make sure nobody got lost or left behind. And there was 15 of us, so it was kind of a big job. And a few days into it, things were going really well. Right? Everybody uh, was kind of getting to where they needed to be. No one had been lost. No one had been separated. We hadn't been late for anything. And what had happened is most of the group had just gotten comfortable uh, not knowing where they were going, not thinking about where they were going, and just content to follow me wherever I went and assuming they'd get to where they needed to be. And this dawned on me when we were walking through a pretty famous spot in the city near the Berliner Dome, which is a huge cathedral there. And I was taking us to a bus stop about a quarter mile ahead of us. And we were walking along a sidewalk that had a little split rail fence uh, to the left of me. And we just stopped at a street vendor for some food. And I had trash in my hands. I don't like walking around carrying trash in my hands. And so I looked to my left. And about 20 yards to my left was a trash can. And there was a little gap in the fence. And so I thought, well, I'll just I'll split the fence here, go throw this trash away, and then I'll come back and join the rest of the group on the sidewalk, and then we'll keep going to the bus stop. And so I did that, and I went, and I threw the trash away, and I turned around, and guess what I saw? All 14 people had followed me right to the trash can. And I was just like, what are you guys doing, right? I told you we were going to a bus stop. Like, there's, this, there's no bus coming here, right? And, and we had a good laugh about it. But I remember that specifically. They just mindlessly followed me wherever I went, like drones, right? And we all have different roles in life in different seasons. Some of you this morning, as I speak to you, some of you are leaders. Some of you are, are parents. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you bear great responsibilities. Some of you know that there are people under your influence and, and are following you. But there's something that is true about every human being across every season and every demographic of life. And what is true is this, is that you are a follower. You are following someone or something. 
And this is why Jesus' invitation to us, he calls us to follow him because he's the only one worthy of it. But what or who you're following is actually shaping you and forming you both in seen and unseen ways. Because while we all had a laugh at the trash can in Berlin, the most dangerous type of following is mindless following. It's the kind of following that lacks intentionality, that lacks purpose, that lacks awareness, right? Because then you're being shaped in ways that occur without your notice because you don't even realize you've given so much influence and sway to this thing. And what is needed is you asking the question, right? Is the thing or the person that I am following, is this source of influence in my life, is it leading me where I want to go? I ought to borrow our story from this morning. Is it just taking me to the trash can? And we're going through the book of Mark together, and we're going to cover three verses today. And in these three verses, it's going to reveal to us so many things, right? And, and one, of the thing, one of the most powerful things it's going to reveal is this, that everybody, anybody who studied the book of Mark with us to this point, we would all consider the disciples followers of Jesus, I mean, think about their resume, right? They, they've left everything behind. They left family, they left career, they left all these things to go with Jesus. They have become his students, they've served him, and if you wanted to define a follower, they're literally following him around wherever he goes every day, right? But today, we're gonna read a passage in Mark 8 where Jesus is gonna teach them something they didn't know before, and their reaction is incredibly telling. The reaction is so harsh and so severe, it actually reveals that they've been following something other than Jesus this whole time. And I want to use this passage to help expose those main influences in our lives, right? Reveal some things about our hearts, and, and at the least, at the very least, ensure that our following is not mindless this morning, that we can at least identify it and call it out, and then I'm praying that God reveals to us who it is that we're serving, who it is we're following, and at the end, right, that we would give him that rightful place, that we become followers of his. And so I'm going to invite Lauren Foxworthy up. She's going to be reading uh, our passage for us today, which is going to be Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her uh, to honor the reading of God's word? Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Jesus answered him, you are the Messiah, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Thank you, Lord. You guys have a seat. Please keep your, the scriptures open there to Mark 8. And like I said, there's a lot happening in this passage. Um, verses 27 through 30, we went, through, went over last week. Uh, verses 31, 33, we're going to cover today. Uh, but I don't want us to miss the main things that are occurring. And, and I want to start with this by just pointing out to you that in these 31 and 32, in just those two verses, Jesus completely shatters the worldview of his disciples. 
All right, now if you've been with us uh, all year, I don't even, I can't remember when we started Mark, right? It was a long time ago. But if you've been with us through the whole study of the book of Mark, you're probably tired of how many times I've mentioned the popular view of the Messiah as an earthly king. But it, I keep mentioning it because it matters and because Jesus keeps running into this notion over and over and over again. And it's the literal point of this entire exchange, Right? Uh, Lauren read for us verses 27 through 30, in which Jesus asks his disciples, who do others say that I am? And then he brings it personal and says, who do you say that I am? And they answer, you are the Messiah. Peter speaks up for the group. And Jesus doesn't correct them because it's right. But what we need to understand and what our passage today reveals is that when Peter declares, you are the Messiah, there was a set of expectations that came with that declaration. You, Jesus, are the Messiah meant you, Jesus, are going to overthrow Rome. You, Jesus, are going to rule over the greatest nation in the world, the nation of Israel. You, Jesus, are going to be an earthly king, and we, your disciples, are going to be in your inner circle. And Israel's glory will be unmatched, and our lives will be amazing. And Jesus knew this is exactly what they were thinking. It's why he brought them to Caesarea Philippi to have this conversation, this city of immense political power and influence that would be a must for the Messiah to conquer if he indeed were an earthly king. And it's there that he asks, who do you say I am? And listen to the language in verse 31. Verse 31 says this, then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. I want you to, st- to listen to how Jesus starts this. It says he began to teach them. He's not correcting them. He's not angry. Right? He's not coming for them in any kind of aggressive He's just enlightening them. This is information that they don't grasp yet. And then, and then I want to lay out what he teaches. And try, let's try together to imagine what the disciples are, are internally thinking and how they're reacting to what he's saying, right? He says, he began to teach them it was necessary that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That alone would throw up alarm bells, right? Because the Messiah is supposed to be a victorious, conquering king. He's not supposed to suffer, there's no, there's no defeats here. He, he's defeating everyone else. Then Jesus teaches him that from there, he's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And there's a reason he mentions those three groups, because those three groups make up the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling court, right? And the Messiah would unify those groups. The Messiah was going to consolidate those power. They were going to, they were going to endorse him as their king, and he would never be rejected by them. And then he says, and then from there, I'm going to be killed, which is not the plan. You don't become the great ruling king if you're dead. And by the way, Jesus does go on to say that after that, he's going to rise again in three days, which is pretty huge. This is Jesus calling his resurrection before it happens, but there's almost no reaction to this at all, is there? And I think I know why. Have you ever been in a conversation where someone drops in a detail that you react in a way that you don't hear anything else? It's like, oh, this happened, this happened, and they keep talking, and all you can think about is that thing they just said, and you're, got, you're not listening anymore. Well, there's like three of those kind of bombs in this teaching for the disciples before we ever even get to the resurrection stuff because they're, they're gone, right? Their, their minds are done. Their, their, their minds are swirling. They're reeling because this is what happened. When, when asked who Jesus is, they get the answer 100% right. He is the Messiah. He is indeed the promised sent son of God. They're right. But if they were to take a quiz on what the Messiah was supposed to do, they would get it 100% wrong. They were off on every aspect of it, all of it. 
which begs the question, how are they that far off? Now, it's really easy for us to, to look back, right? To look back at that Jesus' death and resurrection and the establishment of the church and, the, and the, how he set up the kingdom of God and all that stuff and be like, whoa, how did they miss it? But even so, let's, let's, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Even so, to travel with him for two and a half years, to see everything he did, how could they be so completely off on what he was about? Well, what, what is being revealed here is the disciples were shaped more by their culture and their desires than they were by Jesus. Because let's lay out the evidence real quick. Jesus, at this point, has had a public ministry for around two and a half years. He spent a lot of time in those two and a half years in a Gentile region, which would make no sense for a future Israeli king. He's been rejected by the people in his own hometown. That would not happen to the Messiah, right, in their understanding of it. He goes out of his way repeatedly to antagonize the Sanhedrin and all the religious leaders. And by the way, they return the favor. They don't like him at all. They reject him every chance they get. He's never even began to form an army. Whenever crowds got too big around him, the hype got too high around him, he would do things or teach things that would send most of the people off and and make them reject him. Many times whenever he'd perform a miracle, he'd tell people to be quiet and say nothing about it. He spent lots of time out in isolation in the wilderness away from everybody. He was teaching and healing, but never sought power. He's shown zero desire for political power or earthly reign. And, and why, this is why when, when we read in John 18, when he stands before Pontius Pilate right before he's executed and says this, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And to those of us who've tracked his story through the Gospels, that's a no-brainer. It's an obvious conclusion because there wasn't a single thing that Jesus ever did. There wasn't a single thing that Jesus ever taught. There wasn't a single thing that Jesus ever desired that would give credence to this view of the Messiah being an earthly king. And yet... This far into the journey is a deeply held belief by his own disciples, the guys spending more time with him than anyone. How? Well, again, it was the most widely held view of the Messiah in their day. They would have heard this narrative since they were little. So they had been shaped by their culture to believe this from the time they were brought up. And don't forget this either. They would want to believe it. And that's powerful. Because if this were actually true, and they were in the Messiah's inner circle, oh man, that would mean a lot of good things for them. And what I want you to realize this morning is that combination, the loudest voices of culture aligning with my personal desires, that combination has always caused people to believe things that there's absolutely zero evidence for. It has throughout history, and it's happening today. Around our country this very morning, including some in our own city, there are going to be, doubtless, there will be people who gather in certain churches and will hear someone teach sexual ethics that have no biblical backing whatsoever. And they will claim that they are Christian teachers, and they will claim that God is in support of what they are saying, and, and, and they will be ignoring a mountain of clear, inarguable, biblical standards and evidence that directly contradicts everything they're saying, but our culture will applaud them, and they want it to be true, and that's enough. It's always been enough for human beings. We need to be wary of being shaped by our culture and our desires more than Jesus, Because when that gets a hold of you, I want you to see in verse 32 just how deeply the deception goes, how deeply it gets a hold of you. Look at what happens in verse 32. 
he, this is Jesus, spoke openly about this. And listen to this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Whoops. This is not a good strategy. Right? Our, our, our small group met on Tuesday this last week, and, and one of our families was awesome enough to host the whole group. And last Sunday night at the church uh, appreciation event, they went up to Remy, one of my six-year-old twins, and they're like, hey, Remy, you get to come to our house on Tuesday. And she thought about it and goes, no. And they're like, no, no, you actually, you get to come. And she's like, no, I don't think so, right? And then later when I put her in the van, I was like, no, you are going to their house. And she's like, actually, and got really excited, right? And if only verse 32 would have been that cute, Right? If only Jesus could have told disciples, yes, I'm the Messiah, and then I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die. And they're like, no, I don't think so, right? But the problem is it didn't stop there, did it? Peter actually takes the Son of God to the side to have a private conversation and begins to rebuke him. All of that is so incredibly insulting. I mean, think about it. He pulls you aside as if, man, think about Peter. He's doing Jesus a favor, I'm not going to scold you in front of everybody, Jesus. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be me and you over the side. Don't worry about it. I'm showing great respect to you while doing this horribly disrespectful thing. And then he thinks he gets to switch roles with Jesus. It's Jesus who needs taught. It's Jesus who's wrong. It's Jesus who needs correcting, right? And thank God that he sent Peter to set Jesus straight. Are you kidding me? And this is when Peter and the rest of the disciples learn what we all need to learn. And it's that Jesus is not taking suggestions. He gets incredulous here, and he should be. I want you to take note of the language here. Verse 31, he began to teach them, and here's the word that Mark uses, that it was necessary. It's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. This was not one possible strategy in the face of many other strategies. It wasn't one option that he's throwing out there just to see, test the waters and see how they're doing. It was not open input or comment. This was necessary for him to accomplish what God the Father sent him to do, which is to reconcile sinners back to God. Verse 32 starts with saying that Jesus spoke openly about this. Right? We've all seen where Jesus can teach in parables, he can use analogies, he can use figurative language. We're like, what in the world is he getting at? He's not doing that here. He's being crystal clear. This is what's going to happen to me. First I'm going to suffer, then I'm going to reject it, then I'm going to be killed. It's not, it's not any kind of mystery. So the disciples' rejection of this wasn't over confusion or misunderstanding. It was simply willful disobedience. And why? Because think of what this means for them. They are following Jesus, which means what happens to him is most likely to happen to them. And they were good with that when they thought that what was ahead of him was the good life. But if rejection and suffering and death lay ahead, no, no thanks, I'm out. And this is why Jesus starts this conversation peacefully as a teacher. He's bringing them along. He's enlightening them. He's wanting to help them with their ignorance, right? But now they want to rebuke him? A strong response is needed. Look what he does in verse 33. Look at what, listen to this detail. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. I love this detail. Peter wanted this conversation private. Jesus is not having it. This is going to be a public conversation, right? And he knows, he knows that Peter is speaking for everybody else, right? He knows that they all feel the same way. And so while addressing Peter, he makes sure to physically turn away that he's talking to the entire group. And he says, get behind me, Satan. 
Because none of you are thinking about the way, this the way God would. You're only viewing it through human concerns. And what I love what he does there is there's a third influence. So this point has been unseen, but Jesus calls it out. Because the Bible consistently refers to three forces that stand in contrast to God and his kingdom and his ways and his word. And two of them we've already talked about. The world, right, and our flesh. Disciples have been shaped by their world, the popular view of their day and their flesh, their own selfish desires. And whenever those two things are at play, there's always a third force behind the scenes working. Working through them, creating deception and lies, and that is our enemy, the devil, whose only aim is to distort and destroy everything that God holds dear. And what he uses is deception. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to the devil and he says this, when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. And one of the strongest lies that the three-headed monster of, of Satan, the world, and our flesh all repeatedly tell us is this, is that you deserve and can get all the glory without any of the suffering. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus and remember what he offered him? I'll give you all the kings of the world and you can bypass the cross. It's the same lie since the beginning of time. The, the apple in the Garden of Eden, if you eat that, you'll become like God. No suffering, no cost. You just immediately get to be like him. It's been the same lie repeated. You get all the glory. You deserve all the glory, and it costs you nothing. And you deserve to be handed to you and granted to you. It is your birthright without earning it or persevering for it. And, and if anything other than that occurs, then God and other people are patently unfair to you. Now, the Bible has a different message. The Bible is pretty clear. You're going to have suffering in this world. There will be costs. In fact, it's unavoidable. It's guaranteed. It's a fact of life. But in Jesus Christ, your suffering can actually be redeemed and transformed into later glory. And so Satan's plan, if you will, for the disciples, it's a lie, but his plan is great earthly wealth, power, and influence for no cost. Sounds pretty awesome, right? Except for two things. It's impossible and will never happen. And number two, even if it somehow did, you'll still die after 80 years or so and still be dead in your sins. Jesus' plan is this. Suffering happens. It's going to happen. So endure it and walk through it. In fact, even sign up for it in his name and for his sake and for his kingdom. And then his suffering will pay the price for your sins. And you will die after however many years you have here. And then you will experience an eternity in glory forever where there is no more suffering or pain or illness or death because he has made everything new. And so Satan's plan sounds a whole lot better in the opening part of the pitch, doesn't it? But it's undeniable that God's way is far superior. And the reason Jesus says so clearly here, get behind me, Satan, is because Peter is playing right into his hands. He's buying into his lie and following his playbook. Because look at the three things he does. Peter elevates himself above Jesus. He elevates his feelings and desires over what God wants. And then he questions and argues with the plain, clear, revealed word of God. And we've all done this, haven't we? Whenever we are more formed by the world and our flesh, whenever we elevate ourselves above God and question his word and give our, credence, our feelings more, more credence than his will, he could say to us, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not thinking about any of this. You have no concerns the way God would. You're only thinking with human concerns. And so the question is, how do we avoid this divine rebuke? 
How is it that we discover what it is that we are truly actually following? How do we keep Jesus in his rightful place and not fall for any of the deceptions that come our way? Well, I want us to prayerfully consider these things this morning. The first is simply this. We're going to start, we're going to go back to where we started, is that we are all followers. Every single one of us is being shaped or influenced by something. It's always been true, but now I'm, I would just say this morning, it's undeniable and inarguable. Because in a world where, where content is available to us from all over the world, uh, around the clock, on this little device that we can put into our pockets, uh, in a world of 24-hour news cycles and the internet and podcasts and social media, not a single argument is to be made that there could be one person out there anymore that's not being influenced by something. It's impossible. But... You are being exposed to so many things that not all of them could possibly be influencing you. And so the question is, how can you tell what it is that you're following? How can you tell what are the ones that are influencing you? How can you tell what are the ones that are shaping you? Well, it's the ideas and the identities and the, and the uh, influences that are forming your expectations for life. It are those things which are setting your truth and shaping your identity. It's basically the things that become the lens through which you see your world and make your decisions. It is the labels that you find more value in than simply being a follower of Jesus. I equated a lot to when I was in school growing up, at Clodagh High School. We had these, the, it was a small enough school, I knew every single one of them, that all these student groups formed these little identities they want to be known by. Right, the popular kids and the smart kids and the athletic kids and then the funny kids and the, the slacker kids and the skater kids and the goth kids and the nerdy kids, right? They all had these little circles they ran in. They want, that was their identity. The problem is we don't outgrow this as adults. We still want to be seen as something. We still want to be known for something. And so what is it for you? What, what is your identity in, right? Is it, is it being a conservative is it being a liberal? Is it being a social justice warrior or you're, you're going to be the person that resists all forms of social justice? Is it being pro-science and pro-medicine and pro-vaccine or being all natural, all organic, right? Is it, is it a YouTube channel or an Instagram page or a Facebook feed? Is it you're going to be that cool, hip, progressive Christian or no, I'm going to be the reformed, intellectual, old school Christian? Is it your career that you'd rather be seen as a teacher, a doctor, a CEO, or a pastor, or, or whatever it is, more than just being seen as a follower of Jesus? Is it something that I haven't even mentioned yet? Or is it just plainly Jesus? Is the genuine desire of your heart to follow him and to be identified with him and to become more like him and you don't need any other label at all to feel important or to be you? Because that's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't fit into any label that we pursue. And is that okay with you? Or do you need those to be you? What is the framework that you are trying desperately to fit into what is the one that you want to be identified by? Who or what are you following? What are the ideas and influences and identities that mean more to you than Jesus does? And the second question we have to wrestle with is this. What is your Caesarea Philippi? See, do not, do not forget where Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. It was in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi. 
The city that was a testament and a monument to earthly kingdoms. The city that represented every single thing the disciples hoped in. In a showcase, it was a literal showcase of all their expectations for what they thought Jesus would bring them. And it's there with that right behind him where he says, guys, none of this is coming for you. None of it. Suffering and rejection and death are coming. But then the resurrection And the disciples' reaction to this is so extreme because Jesus was taking away in a matter of seconds every single thing they expected him to do for them, even though he'd promised none of it. And so the question that you have to ask is what are the expectations that you've placed on God, though he hasn't promised you any of them? What are you deep down posturing, almost demanding that God do for you? And if those things actually don't come to fruition, then you might be tempted to reject him altogether. Are you somebody like, God, I'll, I'll serve you, I'll follow you, trust you, just so long as I'm close to family? Do you find your joy in him so long as you have health and live to a good old age? Do you praise him just so long as your kids don't wander from the faith and nothing tragic happens to them? Do you have boxes that you won't permit him to go outside of? God, I I won't go anywhere uncomfortable. I won't go anywhere dangerous. I won't go anywhere I have to learn a new language. I won't go anywhere I have to take a pay cut. But other than that, Lord, have your way, right? Or do you think that because you believe in him and you go to church and you pray and you live kind of a cleaned up PG life, he owes you a good, safe, healthy life? If Jesus set you down today and shattered your expectations like he did the disciples, what would your reaction be? Because he can do that, you know. Because none of those things have ever been promised to us. His plan never looks appealing at the start, but it's always better in the end. And it is incredibly wise of us to identify and call out our expectations before they become idols. Because what I can tell you is when they become idols, I promise you God will come for them. He's a jealous God. He will destroy them and shatter them and rid your life of them. And I speak from personal experience, that is not a fun experience. And so the question before you today is this, as God in this moment is identifying who and what you're following, as he identifies what the expectations are that you're putting on him, knowing he's a jealous God and knowing he will not tolerate them forever, then will you rebuke Jesus or will you surrender? Jesus Christ calls us to follow him. Hard period stop. He will not accept second fiddle in our lives. And so anything, no matter how good you want it to be or claim it is, or maybe it really is, anything that you've placed above him in terms of influence, any expectation that you have put over his will, he will come for those things, I promise you. And it is so much easier and less painful for us to humble ourselves before the Lord than to have him do it for us. His ways are better than ours, even if they look worse at the start. And I know if, if, if there's something that you found your identity in, there's something you put all your hopes in, I know this is going to feel risky. I know it's going to feel painful. It's going to feel challenging at the core of who you are, but this is necessary. It must happen for your sake. Ask the Lord, beg him to identify the identity that means more to you than being his child. Ask him to identify what you're being shaped by more than being shaped by him. 
Ask him to identify what expectations you're putting on God that he's never one time promised you. And then when he does, right, ask him to kill and crucify those things in your heart and life to rid you of the hold they have over you and to bring you to a place of full surrender to him. We're going to give you a couple moments of prayer to, to just hear from him, to ask him those three questions. God, what is the identity that means more to me than being a follower of you? What is the identity, what is, the, uh, what is, what is it shaping me more than, what shaping, than being shaped by you? And what expectations are I putting on you that you've never promised me? A couple moments you just pray and listen to him and see what he reveals. And then we're going to ask you to stand and sing a song of surrender. And I can't demand that you mean it this morning. I can't make you mean it. But it is my prayer that we will sing that song as a response to the Lord and what he's revealed from the depths of our heart that we truly surrender these identities, we truly surrender these influences, we truly surrender these expectations because his way is better. Let's pray. Father David, in your word, invited your inspection. He simply said, search me, God, and know my heart. And see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the path of righteousness. Lord, we we invite that as your church this morning. Father, I pray over these next couple moments that your spirit would, would do what Jesus did in verse 32, that he would speak openly and plainly and clearly. He would reveal to us what is the identity that matters more to us than just being a follower of Jesus. What is the influence that's shaping us more than you are, God? What are the expectations that we're putting on you that you've never promised us? These idols that if you snatched away today, we would react just like the disciples did. That we might even openly rebuke you. So would you reveal those things and then give us the wisdom, give us the courage, give us the right mind of thinking to surrender those things you would ask you to remove them and kill them and crucify them out of our lives to rid the hold they have over us. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that does this before you have to do it for us. Thank you, God, for the violent mercy that you showed to your disciples in in ridding this idol from their lives, would you do the same for us now? And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Take a couple moments just to spend in prayer with the Lord, ask him those questions, and then we'll sing.